when the defense steps in, prosecution has already five years in advance on, on, on us. So I need to start investigating now. If you don't give me the name of certain witnesses or the name of family members of a witness who witnessed a crime, you're slowing me down. Justice plays an important role. I consider this tribunal a false tribunal and indictments false indictments. Such abhorrent crimes must not go unpunished. Proceedings will be long and complex. All rise. So how many uh, female lawyers can you fit around the table? We can fit three around the table, um, more or less comfortably, but this is the biggest lineup we've ever had on asymmetrical haircuts and our technical prowess is not such that they can all have their own microphones. So we're going to be kind of darting back and forth. Um, so you will hear a bit of that in the sound quality. And our three are uh, Defence Counsels Melinda Taylor, Marie-Hélène Prue and Milaine Dimitri. Milene is working as a defence counsel for the Yekotom case from Central African Republic. Incredibly busy women. Wow. So we're especially thankful that she could make it. Um, and I googled Marie-Hélène uh, Prou before uh, she came and found out Ooh, tell me. that she has an alter ego who is a Canadian radio personality. You mean that's not you? <laughs> no, it isn't. <laughs> oh, what so, a shame. So I thought we had a star. But of course we do have one, really. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so I was quite intimidated. I'm not a professional radio maker, so I thought I have to step up my game. But then I saw it was a Quebecois animatrice of radio and it's not the same thing. Well, I think what's interesting here is to talk to the three of you about um, being women working in the area that, that we're working at the moment. Should we do a quick round of getting you to introduce yourself and say how you got involved in this area? Should we start with you, Melinda? Hi, um, well, thank you so much for inviting me to this show, this amazing podcast. Um, I think I got into this through sheer bloody mindedness <laughs> in the sense that I, I love international criminal law, love fair trial and just kept trying and trying and trying until I made a career out of it. And Milen, how did you get into um, international criminal law and being defence counsel at the ICC? Um, I started uh, in 2002. I had an interview and uh, with a law firm in Canada and they were asking me if um, I wanted to step in as a legal assistant and uh, work in um, in Arusha at the uh, Rwandan tribunal and they uh, they said that um, we would uh, it would be probably maximum two year contract uh, and the trial ended in 2015 <laughs> so so it was a it was a long uh, a long case and uh, and then from the ICTR, that's uh, how I moved to the uh, to the ICC with uh, with Melinda first on the Bemba case and now on the Yekaton case. And uh, what about uh, what about you, Marie-Hélène Prou? Well, I was just six months behind Milena at the time, doing an internship at the ICTY in 2002. Um, so it's also a long time ago. However, for me, it didn't start with defense. I did everything before I came to defense. Um, and after going through all of the other organs, chambers, registry, prosecution, I am so happy now that I'm in defense. This is where I think um, things have really made sense for me. Do you stand out as women? working in this area as as kind of lead councils? I mean, uh, is, are you the norm? I think we're the exception that proves the rule. And I think you could say a couple of years ago, apart from Metro B, there were no female lead council. I remember when I started in the Article 70 case, I was actually the only female 
in the courtroom for many of the hearings. And that was a bit ridiculous, given how many women are in this field and how excellent they all are. So I think it's been a positive change that people like Melen and Mary Helen are now also counsel. But I think that's more deliberate um, efforts on our part to actually make that happen. I know that when I saw the Bemba lineup for the first time, I was like, okay, this is something I never actually see, that it's all women on the bench of the defence. But um, you say that it's um, taken some effort to get there. What what kind of efforts has it taken? I think it's uh, it's uh, it's it's more difficult for a woman. Um, I, I I can't explain why, but uh, I remember when I started at the ICTR, I was in um, in a case where there were six co-accused, and um, one of them uh, was a woman. Uh, she was lead counsel, Nicole Bergevin. And, uh, it, it, you know, she, she had to struggle to get her position, to stay in her position. Uh, there were several fights with the registry. Um, she wanted to bring her husband as a co-counsel. Um, so it was, and, and every time she was um, standing up in the courtroom, it was, it was also uh, difficult in terms of culture, in terms of, uh, you know, I, I can also do this. I'm, I think there's also a stereotypical view of what a defense counsel is, and it's a very aggressive male who's basically fighting like a lion for his client and being extremely strong-worded. Um, and and people, I think, have, have problems getting out of this stereotype and accepting that advocacy does not have to be aggressive all the time. And it's not that women cannot be aggressive, and, and sometimes they are, but they also bring another dimension and another another style of advocacy. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, as, as much as we are now and, and we are, you know, advocating in our own style, Hopefully, we'll get out of that stereotype um, because the defense counsel is not made in only one model. Do you find also that this is there's uh, you know kind of institutional maybe uh, reasons why women don't um, rise so quickly as counsel? But is it also in defendants who maybe want to see this kind of aggressive male, and when you show up as a woman lawyer, are not convinced that you can defend them? That's a very good question, because when I was at the ICTY working in the legal aid unit, the head of the legal aid unit there was like, well, we have Mr. Sheshaw, we have to appoint a duty counsel who's male, because there's no way that this macho Balkan male will ever accept a female defense counsel. And that's the perception. But I think it's completely false. Because in my experience, working with detainees, what they value is someone who will fight for them and do their utmost to defend them fairly and vigorously. And I think they realize that what you have to look at is the person, not the gender. And in fact, I think even our client, Mr. Alassane, appreciates that it's the females on his team who work really hard, who are dedicated and committed to the case. So I think this perception that you have males from certain countries or certain cultures and they won't work with the women, it's false. Because what they want at the end of the day is the best counsel. And the best counsel in The Hague is often a woman. On the um, structural side, um, in defence teams, um, we often hear of problems of getting payments, of um, whether you have enough resources to do what uh, what you need to do. I think it's um, maybe unfair just asking defence counsels this, but okay, uh, is that one of the reasons why uh, women don't stay as defence counsels because they can't really afford to? Yes, certainly. I think that the legal aid system is inherently discriminatory because unlike staff, the legal aid system 
doesn't have the same support structure. You don't have contracts. You don't have maternity leave, which is a big problem for women of a certain age who want to have children, and it's a right, and shouldn't have to choose between doing defence work and having a family. As Malen's saying, there's also a problem with bringing spouses over and getting visas that defence don't have that right, whereas the prosecution do. So unfortunately, a lot of very talented and experienced women lawyers will leave the defence and go elsewhere because of these, these issues. And I think if you really want to have true gender equality, we need to fix the system and have a fairer and appropriate employment system for defense support staff. It's also very scary. I mean, for women, I, I often had that question when I um, when I, um, I did conferences in universities. The, the, the students, the young women, were asking me, how can you do this and still have children? How can you do this? Um, if you expect to have children in in the next couple of years, they think of uh, you know all all, all the problems that uh, that could lead to the fact that, for example, if if you if you decide to have children and you want a maternity leave or you you need to take off for a couple of months, who's going to take over the case? Can you can you do both? And so I I think it's also part of the problem. It's the it, some women prefer to have. Uh, uh, a second chair because because of this fear of being overwhelmed but we can still do it it's still manageable you can still organize your team you can i mean i had i i had kids while i uh, while i was lead counsel while i was co-counsel one of the you've been both uh, melinda and milan have been very active in the iccba the um, bar association for uh, defense lawyers at the at the international criminal court and you're very uh, focused on um conditions at the workspace. So we've talked a bit about that um, support staff doesn't get as much um, support as uh, regular staff and no maternity leave. There's also been a big um, issue about um, harassment and um, sexism on the work floor. Um, we did a story for Justice Tribune about Me Too at the ICC when someone on a defense team went on a trip to Switzerland to interview a, a witness and, and uh, the lead counsel or the, one of the lawyers decided to try and get into the bedroom and those kinds of things. I suppose the question is, has, has it improved? I yeah. mean, do you think by raising these, uh, these issues and talking about them within the, um, the Bar Association that, that things are, are changing or have changed? I don't think that the root cause of the problem has been solved. And I think that's the power dynamic and that's the lack of employment protection. That is, that council can hire and fire support staff at will. So it creates this environment where it's very hard for support staff to say no. And if they do so no, say no, they can be fired. And there's pressure on them to go on missions, to work these ridiculous hours, and to be put in this situation of vulnerability, where they're vulnerable to sexual harassment, but also other forms of abuse and exploitation. And that's something everyone turns a blind eye to because it's like, oh, that's defence. They're outside the court. They're not staff. We d we're not responsible for that. And I think as an organisation, the ICC can't just talk the talk. It has to walk the walk. The defence teams, the victims teams, we're part of the justice process. We have just the same right to protection. It's also, it, I mean, the, the, the problem is also that the people who are in position of authority, they know that this is a, com a competitive area and that young women, young lawyers will do anything to get a job. 
and uh, they they so they they will agree to lower salaries. They will agree to they, they as Melinda say it's very it becomes very difficult for them to say no. They they feel intimidated. They don't want to lose their position because this is their 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 dream job for years, and it's so difficult, you know, to get out of your national system uh, as a starter, as a junior lawyer, and and set a foot at the ICC. So once you get there, you don't want to lose it. And I think that's also part of the problem because people in position of authority know that uh, this person or such person is, is not going to say no, is not going to uh, risk losing their job. So there's this intimidation. Now I've seen um, that uh, for the ICCBA working group, they had to put all these examples of harassment and I was kind of... Um, frightened by these examples because I thought if they have to list them, isn't it obvious? Um, but I thought I'd do a little exercise with you three and uh, list some of the examples and um, you can tell me whether you've had this happen to you. Oh, no. <laughs> really okay. no, not this actual, but um, so we'll start with the physical or verbal threats, yelling and screaming, um, malicious and unfounded reports or allegations against an individual, Intimidation? Have you felt it? Not necessarily now, but in, in your career, has this been something that has happened? I, I, I guess I've been lucky. Um, I haven't had anything that bad. Uh, however, the occasional unwelcome flirt will happen. Uh, I make very clear that I'm married. <laughs> um, it's easier now, I think, than when I was younger. When you're younger, you're you're a lot more vulnerable because your career isn't established because um, you yeah you don't want to offend the other person and you also doubt yourself like am I seeing this right is he really coming on to me you're not sure um, so yeah n nowadays it doesn't happen that much and that's you know I'm thankful for getting older in that sense um. I've, I think I've witnessed a tendency to use intimidation to use kind of also passive-aggressive bullying um, and also trivialization this sense of what women have done isn't as important as what a male might have done, or to not hear the female voice often in meetings, that it's we're just kind of overlooked and that certain other people might be given much more priority or prominence as a result. I think these patterns are still there and I think people don't recognise them for what they are. So I think, yes, it's shocking that the ICCBA had to list these patterns, but I think that's because people don't recognise them and they're not aware, even now, I think people aren't aware that their behavior is just not acceptable. And the ICCBA has now established an harassment hotline. Um, Milen, was that really necessary? Do you think they're getting a lot of calls? I don't know if they're getting a lot of calls. Um, it is necessary, but um, we also need more. I think uh, uh, I, I know of a few colleagues uh, who um, who are in difficult positions. I. I I invited them to um, to use the hotline. I don't know if they did. I think uh, they're still scared. They're scared of leaks. They're scared of how it's handled. Um, and I'm sure it's handled in a very professional way. But when, um, when you are in a position like that, in a vulnerable position, um, when you go through intimidation and harassment on a regular basis, uh, you become so scared that uh, sometimes you have a tendency to go towards the people uh, with whom you have the most confidence. Um, but I, I, I suggested uh, to those colleagues on many occasions several solutions. 
um, but they are still um, they're still too scared to address the issue. And um, so hopefully, hopefully we're going to have more initiatives such as the hotline. Um, do you really see all of this um, coming out of the structural imbalance between the prosecution and the defence, and um, and whether they can whether they have equality of arms in in this? Is is that really where it comes from, or is it more a cultural thing? I think it can't be reduced to just the difference between prosecution and defense. I mean, maybe there's a lot more leeway in defense because of the lack of structure. But I mean, culturally, I, I was in prosecution. I've seen that too. I, you know, it's it's not. Uh, it doesn't belong to one side or the other. It's it's everywhere. Uh, I've seen it in chambers. I've seen it in the registry. Um, you know, it's just um, I, yeah. I guess the old uh, old ways of, of thinking about women in the workplace and and some men adopting a patronizing tone and being you know demeaning to them it's that's that's pretty much universal you've all worked in either the icty and the ictr and the icc and uh, for me as a journalist covering these different trials it seems like through the years defense has become more important or more um more time and resources are dedicated to it do you see this development as well in the beginning defense was kind of an afterthought um, also, when we covered cases, now it's much more professionalized in a way. Do you see this same kind of development? I would have thought it'd be the opposite, actually. <laughs> to be honest, I thought you had... By the end of the ICTY, it was a well-oiled machine. They knew what they were dealing with. They'd heard defense arguments before. They knew how they had to rule. I think at the ICC, there's still this, not this kind of sense of how to deal with fair trial issues or due process issues. And I feel that we're very much the beginning of getting the defence and the role of the defence properly recognised. At the ICTY you had the ADC set up at the end and it had a full role in being heard and, and lobbying for certain issues, whereas at the ICC there's been quite a lacuna because you have an OBCD but the OBCD wasn't an organ of the court and the ICCBA was only set up a couple of years ago. It doesn't have compulsory membership so it doesn't have the same footing as the ADC has. So I would actually say that we're not in any way where the defence were at the ICTY towards, say, the, the, the mid-2000s. Um, and when you look at the, the development of fair trial issues, in the mid-2000s, almost every defendant at the ICTY was granting, granted provisional release. It was seen that these trials are long, we have to release them. That's what fair trial demands. The ICC, that's not happening. I, I, I totally agree with Melinda. And um, to, to, uh, to jump on this point, I think that... Uh, what shocks me from the ICC is the number of ex parte proceedings and the number of redactions from the defense. I never had that at the ICTR. What I was, do you I, mean? I was, I, was part of, I was part of the system. I was the defense. I, you don't need to hide things from me. I, I didn't have that in Canada when I did the genocide trial. I didn't have it at the ICTR, not to that extent. Now, every, every, uh, every month, there's an ex parte filing. A, file, a, a prosecution will file something. The defense won't have access to it. So the prosecution has a direct line of communication with the chambers, with the judges. But, you know, it's, 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 it's a step back. We're part of the process. We're professional lawyers. We have a code of conduct. How come we can't get an opportunity to present arguments on, on, on the motion that you're filing? And, and for me, this is, a, this is a step back from the defense. And, and the overall view of, of, the, of the accused, of the suspect, of the person detained, it's as if they're presumed less innocent. 
And that's that's my that's what I get from the ICC in since I started working there. It's as if the more crimes, the more charges, the less innocent. They're losing the presumption. Yeah, my idea was that was a, that was also at the beginning of the ICTY, and then defense got so professionalized that it diminished. And now you're super well organized, and you know all the questions to raise. So then, for me, it looks like a well-oiled defense machine. Mm-hmm. But I guess if the judges lag behind in fire trial issues, that's a whole different thing. Yeah, especially at the confirmation confirmation stage, the defense is very much shut out of a big part of the proceedings. Um, as as Milan said, I mean, in our case, we've had whole motions come in. I mean, they, they come in first ex parte to the defense, then we get a redacted version of them. All of the arguments are redacted, and we have to respond to that. And the chamber is satisfied that fair fair you know, fair trial rights are respected because we get an opportunity to respond, but we don't even know to what we're responding. So how can we argue anything? Um, and, and that's pretty shocking. But for them, um, yeah, they say, I don't know, the protection of victims and witnesses, this justifies everything. And, uh, and clearly, they do not trust the defense at all. Yeah, I was going to ask. This is a tr- issue of trust, it seems, in the defense. Absolutely, and that's uh, that's extremely concerning because we, as Milen said, I mean, we have a code of conduct. We all respond to a national bar. We're professionals, and yet we do not have the same benefit of the doubt that a prosecution has. They do not trust us to the same level. Is that not reflective of the, um, you know, this difficulty of really protecting victims fundamentally, that they're just bending over backwards to do that? Is that not what it comes down to? Victim and witness protection is essential for a fair trial, but I'm yet to see any empirical evidence that redacting information from the defence in any way promotes victim protection. There's this assumption that if we get this information that we, we, Milen, Marilyn and myself, present a danger to witnesses. And yet fair trial demands that we have to get that information at some point. So why delay it? Why eke it out in little steps? Why not give it to us at the early point so we can actually prepare our case? It becomes this cat and mouse game, which has got nothing to do with witness protection, but everything to do with litigation strategy. Or is it uh, also the argument that um, there has been evidence that some of the defendants at the ICC have uh, been trying to uh, interfere with cases? Is that, uh, is that you know, where, where this comes from, this sense that... Uh, that your side is not playing fairly? Well, the only case that I'm aware of where there's been actual convictions for contempt is obviously the Bemba Article 70 case. And that didn't concern intimidation of prosecution witnesses. That concerned um, giving money and promises to defence witnesses. So again, that had nothing to do with witness protection. So I think in terms of the actual empirical research and the actual judgments that we have, I've yet to see anything that would demonstrate that giving this information to the defence, information that they will receive at some point, because this is information they have a right to have at trial, so I don't see the point of delaying it. If they're going to get it eventually, why not give it to them at a time when they can actually effectively use it to prepare their case? And do you think it's just kind of um, mistrust or also a way to slow down a defence case or make it more... um a kind of biased way of looking at it so that you get sprung with surprises in a defense case and you can't mount a proper defense? Do you think it's intentional like that? I see Milen. I I, I don't think it's intentional, but it's the direct consequence. It does slow us down. When the defense steps in, prosecution has already five years in advance on, on, on us. So I need to start investigating now. 
If you don't give me the name of certain witnesses or the name of family members of a witness who witnessed a crime, you're slowing me down. So it's, it is the direct consequence. And as Melinda said, we're, we're, we're defense lawyers. I'm, you know, we have a professional code of conduct. I'm not, I'm, we're not, yes, witness protection is important, but we are lawyers. We're not going to go and intimidate or harass or threaten a witness. We need the information because we need to do the investigations. It's not because A said so that I don't have the right to meaningfully defend my client against the allegation. And that doesn't mean in any way threats or security concerns or intimidation. It means I need to go on the ground and investigate the allegation. But by hiding the information from us, you're slowing down the process. If I play ad, uh, devil's advocate, uh, you have a lot of people who will say, or especially the prosecution will say, we have to mount the entire case. That's why we need all these resources. And you as defense lawyers just have to, have to pick small holes. So you don't need as many resources at much time to mount a defense case. It's not comparable. What would you say to that? Well, if you put it in terms of, re of resources, I agree. We don't necessarily need the exact same resources. I mean, they have an, a, a whole division of investigators. We don't need to have 15 investigators. That's not the question. The question is we need the information. We need to know what the case is about. Um, otherwise, our, our small team cannot do the, the work properly. So not just an issue of resources, it's about the length of the proceedings when you have people in detention. I mean, I think when you look at the Bemba case, this is someone who was in detention for 10 and a half years before being acquitted. How do you get that time back? You can't. It's lost time that will be forever lost. The only way to deal with this is either to Brittany release them or shorten the trial proceedings. And one way of shortening the trial proceedings is giving the defense the information as soon as possible so we can actually investigate as soon as possible and we're trial ready at an earlier point in time. And on a very practical question, like if you look at your, the Yekaton case, I will ask Milin, how big is the defense team versus the prosecution team in terms of people or um, FTEs, I think they're called, <laughs> full-time employment positions? Do, do you have an idea? Uh, no, to be honest, no, because I, um, I don't know exactly how big is uh, the prosecution team. They, I, I saw in some filings that they're complaining about their limited resources. I'm not going to comment on that. Uh, I, can, I, I am pretty sure that uh, we're not as big. Um, so if I, I, I can't give you numbers. I'd, I'd rather not to. Yeah, I can give you numbers. For, for us, at, a, at our confirmation hearing, there's 13 prosecution lawyers that came um, and, and pleaded before the court. 13 who actually came and pleaded. That doesn't count those who didn't get a chance to talk and all of the support staff and all of the interns and all of the investigators. For us, we were two with a right of audience and we have three other junior team members. That's the entire team. And I had to fight to get Marilyn on the case as a co-counsel. Originally, the registry was saying, no, you don't have a right to co-counsel at this point in time. I said, well, then it would just be me against <laughs> these 13 <laughs> lawyers. And I can't speak that much or that long. It's exhausting, physically exhausting. And I just don't have the time to type that much. So we all agree that parity of arms is in a way, it's in a long way off. Do you think it will ever be achieved at the ICC? Well, it's a permanent court, and I'm an optimist. 
So, Stephanie, we've got these uh, three questions that we usually ask, and we've got three people. Should we try one per person? Let's start with the first one. And Well, the first one is, uh, what does everybody get wrong about your job? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can someone else answer that one first? Damilen, what does everybody always get wrong about the job? Basically. I think the structure and the organization. They think that we're, you know, they have this imaginary view that we're a big machine with, uh, with, with all the resources uh, of, of an institution. We're outside the institution. If I want to talk to IT, I have to go through a specific section. If I need, uh, uh, if, if I need to, to buy a recorder for my investigator, I need to go through a specific section. Everything is slowed down because A, we're very small, we're a small team, and B, we have to go through the, through the, the, the bureaucracy. Uh, and we're, we're, not, we're not part of it, so we have interlocutors. And I think that they, what they get wrong is that, you know, when the, when, when the judges will give you a deadline or when, when uh, the prosecution will just drop disclosure, they think we can just swim into it uh, in, in a few days and everything's going to get sorted. They don't realize how small we are. You know, Marilyn gave, gave numbers a few moments ago. It's, it's I mean, I, I, I would love to have 13 people who could share the, 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 the pleadings that I'm going to do next week or who could share the workload on going through statements and statements and statements. I think that's what they get wrong. The, the, the lack of, our, of, of resources a defense team is. It's like a small family, and we're trying to work in this big institution with all uh, the bureaucracy behind it. I would also say what people get wrong is why we do this. There's an assumption that we either do it because we're really well paid, which is so wrong, um, or that we're doing it because we somehow are committed to the client's cause, that we're associated with that cause and that's what we're fighting for. Whereas, in fact, I would say for the three of us sitting here, I don't want to speak for you, but I think it's because we care deeply about fair trial and about there being a fair process and a fair outcome. And that's something which I think often gets lost. For me, it... it it's close to what Melinda said, but uh, my own husband has told me, you used to be a humanitarian and now you're not anymore, now that you are in defense. And I strongly disagree with that statement and I told him so. I, I am still a humanitarian and that is why I'm doing this job. It's because I'm fighting for international humanitarian law to be respected. But I'm fighting it from the perspective of my client and to make sure that he's not convicted of something that is not a crime or that he didn't commit. And, and that joins the fair trial, right? I mean, defense is an integral part of the justice process. There is no justice if there's not a strong and competent defense. So for me, it's an absolute honor to do it. And I believe that I'm still pursuing humanitarian ideals. And our other uh, main question is, uh, what haven't we asked you that we should have asked you? What, uh, what question should we have put to you? Or have we covered everything? Good. Deep silence. <laughs> Good. Deep <laughs> silence. Okay. If you could change one thing about international criminal court or international criminal law, what would it be? If I could change one thing about the ICC, it's the confirmation of charges stage. <laughs> For me, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a huge problem. It's, um, I mean, it's, it's, it goes to the core of the issue. It, you, you bring, you, you arrest someone, you bring him to the court. He still doesn't know what he's going to be charged for. He's still considered a suspect. 
you as a prosecution, you're not ready, you continue to investigate. You're not ready for the confirmation of charges, you postpone it and postpone it. And this person is in detention, still wondering what are, what are the charges going to be. And then, as we said earlier, the defense starts getting bits and bits of disclosure in a piecemeal fashion with, with everything redacted. So you can't really start your investigation. And all that time, your client is sitting in jail, waiting, waiting, until the hearing on the confirmation of charges. I, I've, I've been through it for, for almost a year now, and I'm wondering why aren't we going back to the indictment system? While you bring him once you're ready, but you don't bring him at the cost of, you know, I'm still not ready. I still, me as a prosecution, need to investigate. So let him sit there while I finish my investigations, while I'm ready to present my document containing the charges. Yeah, I think I, I agree with Milen. The overall length of the proceeding is a huge problem. Um, we have a person in, in prison, and for in, in our case, Melina and I's case, um, the confirmation process took a year and a half. I mean, we're still waiting for a decision. It's going to come within a couple of weeks now. Um, but it's it's already been a really long time for someone who's been away from his family, his young children, his life. And um, and we're, you know, clearly preparing him for what might happen, which is a trial. And, and he looked at me the other day and he said, well, if the charges are confirmed, I'm already convicted. And he's, he's absolutely right. Uh, it, because if the charges are confirmed, it means we're going again for another five, six years. And that's an absolute tragedy to do something like that to a person. Um, I cannot believe that there is no way to make these trials much shorter, much more efficient, much more to the point. Uh, instead, they're bringing monster cases uh, that are extremely complicated legally and logistically. And, and we're ending up you know, with situations where, like, Backbone Legoudé or Mr. Bemba, they're acquitted, but after spending five, six, seven, or ten years in prison, these these years are never coming back. Um, and, and this is this is a human tragedy, and that's always uh, often forgotten, I believe. And our other question is, um, what have you seen or read recently, or maybe lo longer term, that was really eye-opening, something that really changed your point of view, anything you'd like to recommend to our audience? Hold on. You're going to look it up. Because it's awesome. Is it Now They See Us or When They See Us? When They See Us, the Central Park Five documentary. It's fantastic. should be compulsory viewing all about miscarriage of justice and exactly what we're talking about, the human cost of detention and this lost time that you can never get back. And that's why fair trial matters, because people get it wrong. Not everyone who's arrested is guilty. In fact, the presumption of innocence means that you have to presume that they're not, which means that you have to have a system in place to protect them from this human tragedy of being detained for years and years and years and being innocent. Mina? To be honest, I haven't watched anything for weeks. <laughs> As you said earlier, I'm preparing for the confirmation hearing next week. My, my sister made me promise that tonight I'm switching off the computer, the phone, and we're watching something together, which is something that I haven't done for weeks. For me, there's nothing recent. I also, I'm, I'm a little bit of a phone addict, so I, I spend too much time on Twitter. Um, this being said, I, one that I read a long time ago that had a lasting impact is a very, it's a classic, a long, a long March to Freedom from um, Nelson Mandela. For me, this was, um, it was, it's heartbreaking, and it's such a story in, of resilience and courage um, and, of, and of justice. And, um, you know, after 
justice long overdue in that case. Um, that, um, that is one of the best uh, book I've ever read, frankly. Okay. I wanted to ask, because you say you're a phone addict and you're always on Twitter, <laughs> what are the recommendations? Who should we be following on Twitter then? Um, I, I mean, there's a lot that I like a lot. Um, for example, Alka Pradhan, who's the, one of the counsel on the Guantanamo case. Uh, Baluchi um, is her client. She's exceptional. She's outstanding. Um, if I had a few minutes, I could think of a lot more. Okay, well, thank you very much, all three of you, for uh, taking time out of your incredible schedules, uh, so busy, uh, to talk to us about being uh, female councils at the ICC and fair trial issues. We've had Melinda Taylor, Marielaine Prue, and uh, Milene Dimitri here. Bye. This podcast was created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. Show notes and additional blogs are available on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. It is recorded in the Hague Humanity Hub, home to a community of innovators in the field of peace, justice, development and humanitarian action. Music is by audionautics.com and the show is available on every major podcast service. So please subscribe, give us a rating and spread the word.